The book of Hosea. Father, we ask that you bless tonight's Bible study. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hosea begins a new section of Scripture known as the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets consist of 12 books written by 12 Hebrew prophets scattered over the long history of the divided kingdom. These books are called Minor, understand, not because of their content, but because of their length. They're just shorter than what we call the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Nevertheless, their message is extremely vital. The minor prophets have less pages, but they pack a powerful punch. I like to call these books the minor prophets with the major message. Tonight we'll survey the first of the minor prophets, the book of Hosea. Chapter 1, verse 1, puts Hosea in its historical context. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel from 760 B.C. to 710 B.C. In other words, he served for 50 faithful years. Micah and Isaiah were Hosea's contemporaries, but they prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah. Hosea prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel, and yet all three men certainly had difficult ministries. And yet, it's hard to imagine a tougher ministry than the one to which Hosea was called. Verse 2 tells us, When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry. And children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer. God asked this noble, virtuous, godly young pastor, in essence, to marry a hooker. (laughs) Pastor Hosea is to marry a madam. Can you believe it? To take as his wife, Gomer the go-go girl. What a shock to his sensibilities. What an affront to his morality. What would people think? A prophet and a prostitute. The law of Moses was clear. Prostitutes were to be stoned, not courted. What was God's purpose? Hosea must have wondered if it was all a trick. Sorry about that. Thought I'd throw that in. I'm sure Hosea was concerned about his own ministry when you think about it. Lord, how will people respect me as a spiritual leader if they see me married to an immoral woman? But remember a prophet's job. He was God's spokesman. He was sent to the people to convey God's heart. And the plight that God assigns to Hosea is the same situation that God had endured for years and years in his relationship with Israel. God's wife, Israel, had committed spiritual adultery. Rather than be faithful to him, she had shared her bed with idols. She had given her heart and wasted her affections on idols. Hosea's home, in essence, was to be a reflection of the house of Israel. No doubt it was tough to be married to a harlot. But what we would consider a burden in reality was actually a privilege. Hear me out. 
In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, there Paul explained the goal of his life. He said that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, we certainly all want to experience the, the power of the risen Christ. You know, we like that idea. Yeah, I want to know the power of his resurrection too. Supernatural strength. That's a good idea. I'd like that too. Yes, Lord. I want my ministry to embody miracle working power. But Paul also wanted to know the fellowship of the Lord's sufferings. And if you truly love someone, you'll want to experience their pain as well as their power, as well as their pleasure. It's an honor to be allowed to share a hurt. If my wife, if my kids were deeply hurt and they held that in and they didn't share it with me, I would be insulted. The fact that they're willing to share it with me means that I'm important to their lives. Paul loved his Lord so much that he wanted not only to reveal God's power, he wanted to feel God's pain. And this is the privilege that God here gives to Hosea. Before the prophet goes out to reveal God's word, he first needs to feel God's wound. Guys, the deepest intimacy we can have with the Savior is to share in his sufferings. Hey, work a miracle and you'll draw close to God's muscle. But feel his hurt, and you'll draw close to God's heart. What would you really rather want? Hosea takes Gomer to be his wife. And it doesn't take long for them to have a son. In verse 4, the Lord himself names the baby. He's called Jezreel. Two more children follow, a girl named Loruhama, and another boy named Loami. Recently... I heard of a friend, or a friend of mine told me that he had a doctor, and, and, and when he told me the doctor's name, I kind of stepped back. I, I was kind of shocked. The doctor's name is Hurt. Can you imagine Dr. Hurt? I hope that's not a prophetic name. You'd think the good Dr. Hurt would either want to change his name or change his occupation one. I also read of a man who collects names that reflect their owner's occupation. Here's his list. Ralph Bible, the minister. Mr. Plank, the carpenter. Mr. Hand, the physical therapist. Mike Cash, who works for a finance company. Mike Hookham is director of advertising for a shoe company. Mr. Stamper manages the stamping department of a large machine company. There is a doctor who removes dead tissue from wounds. His name is Dr. Skinner. <laughs> Dr. Moeller, the dentist. And oh yes, the man writes, me, I've been in sales most of my life and my name is Mike Sellers. Well, God did give to Hosea's three kids prophetic names. The name Jezreel was the place where Jehu slaughtered the descendants of the wicked king Ahab. Jehu was God's instrument of judgment, but apparently he went too far. He went overboard, and the slaughter set the tone for his bloodthirsty reign, and God promised to judge the house of Jehu, which included at the time the king, Jeroboam II. 
The word Jezreel means scattered. And that's what God will do to Israel. In 722 B.C., they were conquered by the Assyrians, and the people were scattered among the nations. Even today, twice as many Jews live outside of Israel as live within Israel. Hosea and Gomer's next child was a girl named Loruhama, which means no pity. And this is what happened to the wayward, hard-hearted nation of Israel. Guys, there comes a time when God withdraws His mercies and His pity. Before the flood of Noah, God said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. In other words, God's patience has its limits. This explains the devastating plight of the Hebrews over the centuries, from the Crusades to the Inquisitions to the Holocaust. The Jews have been an unpitied people. Names like Auschwitz and Dachau send chills up and down our spines. Here, the name is prophetic of the plight of the people, Lo Ruhama. The nation Israel will be in for a time of no pity. The minister and the madam have one more child, Lo Ami, which means not my people. What a strong rebuke for Israel. They claim to be God's children, and yet God denies them. They're illegitimate, he says. They have his name, but not his nature. Not all names fit the person's nature. It reminds me of the newspaper ad. Lost dog walks on three legs, is missing an eye, has a gnarled left ear, a broken tail, several scars, goes by the name Lucky. Some names don't exactly fit the bearer's nature and life experiences, and so it would be with Israel. They were called the children of God, and yet God says they will be called not my people. In light of these three names and their prophetic implications on the nation Israel, Donald Barnhouse writes, Never has so much been said in so few words. These names given to Hosea's three children illustrate the future of the nation Israel for two millenniums. But here's the question. If Israel has been renamed Loa me or not my people, does that mean that God has abandoned the Jewish people forever? And the answer, no way, Hosea. First <laughs> 10 tells us, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. And chapter 2 reveals how God and Hosea both plan to turn back their rebellious brides and fulfill this wonderful promise. Chapter 2 opens with Hosea hurt and angry. The singular form of the name Loami means not my child. And the implication is that by this point in Gomer and Hosea's relationship, she had turned back to her whorish ways. The boy, this last born child, wasn't even Hosea's child. In chapter 2, verse 2, Hosea brings charges and threatens his wayward wife with a bill of divorcement, even public disgrace. He wants her to repent. He wants her to return to him. You know, whenever I perform a wedding, 
I remind the couple, God doesn't expect you to be perfect. We know better. We know you can't be perfect. God doesn't expect you to be perfect, but God does expect you to be faithful. And then I turn to the young lady and I say, God doesn't expect you to be perfect, but he does expect you to be faithful. In a nutshell, that's the message of the book of Hosea, both in how it applies to our relationships with God and our relationship with our spouse. We have taken a vow to our spouse. We've taken a vow to God, and we need to remember those vows. In verse 5 of chapter 2, Gomer reveals her excuse for leaving Hosea. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. In other words, she credits her boyfriends with the blessings she's enjoyed. Sure, her lovers may have enticed her with a gift or two. But Gomer forgot that her nice clothes and her three square meals and the rest of her basic necessities had been paid for by her husband, Hosea. She paid for her adulterous affair out of Hosea's checkbook and then deceived herself into thinking that the lovers were footing the bill. This was also the sin of the nation Israel. God says in verse 8, She did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. You see, Israel forgot who was paying the bills. Sometimes my kids forget that. They forget who's paying the bills. And their attitude goes south when they do. In our relationship with God, sometimes we forget who's paying the bills. And our attitude goes south. We need to remember that all that we have. We should thank God for it. It comes from His hand. It's interesting how both God and Hosea deal with a wayward wife. Rather than try to hold on, they let the girl go. They turn her loose to reap the consequences of her actions. God says in verse 6, He'll hedge her, He'll hedge up her way with thorns and wall her in. In other words, her way will be hard and thorny and restrictive. Verse 7 reveals God's strategy. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. Here is good advice for handling an adulterous spouse or a rebellious friend or even an embittered church member. Don't try to hold on to them. Just let them go. Guys, you reap what you sow. Try to stand in a person's way and you'll keep God from getting their attention. It's when you let them go that they can go out and taste the painful consequences of their of their sin. That's when they learn. That's when they'll want to come back and realize, hey, I blew it. They'll want to return, come back to what they once knew. But when you stand in their way, you prohibit them from reaping their ruin. Verse 7 says, the sooner we let them go, the sooner we'll get them back. One day they'll wake up and they'll realize how good they had it. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. When I was five years old, I remember it. I got mad at my parents. 
and I decided to run away from home. I'll never forget it. My dad helped me pack. Mom packed me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, one more for the road. And I made it four doors down the street before I realized that the Adams house was not such a prison after all. God is saying the best opportunity for the rebel to reach the same conclusion is to let him go. For once he's without, then it will finally dawn on him how much he really had. Verses 14 through 23 predict Israel's return to God in the last days. And I love verse 16. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. This is what we've experienced through Jesus Christ. This is the intimacy that we can have with God, that we no longer can call Jesus just master. Now we've been brought into an intimacy where we can call God husband. That's beautiful. A slave is forced to obey his master, but a wife helps her husband because she loves him. Trust me, I don't have enough money to go out and hire someone to do all that my wife does for our family, just for free, just because she loves us. Likewise, God wants us to serve Him, not because we have to, but willingly, because we love Him, because He's our husband, not just our master. Verse 23 is a wonderful demonstration of God's faithfulness to Israel. You remember the names that God gave to the three children of Hosea. Here God changes those names. The name of the firstborn was Jezreel, or scattered. And yet in the end times we're told God will sow or replant Jezreel back in the land. God will bring Israel back into the land He had promised them. God says, then I will sow her for myself in the earth. And catch this, I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Remember, lo ruhama means no pity or no mercy. And yet in the last days, God will again show pity and mercy on Israel. He continues, then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. In the Hebrew, it implies that God will change their name from Loami to simply Ami. He'll drop the negative. In the end, Israel will go from being not my people to my people, says the Lord. What happens to Gomer out in the streets is not a pretty picture. She gets bought by a brothel. She becomes a slave to a pimp. Imagine how Hosea felt. Put yourself In Hosea's shoes, how would you feel if your wife left your happy home for a dark, dank, nasty hotel room and a succession of loveless lovers? At the beginning of chapter 3, Hosea is wondering what to do. Verse 1 tells us, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who looked to other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the pagans. What an amazing picture here of God's love for us. You can stop serving God. You can stop loving God. You can stop worshiping God. But understand, you can never stop 
God from loving you. Never. His love cannot be extinguished. It's an undying love. It endures all things. Four-year-old Ashton loves the Toy Story movies. And his favorite character is the space ranger, Buzz Lightyear. And recently in Sunday school, the kids were learning that God's love has no limits. And after the lesson, the teacher quizzed the class and said, Okay, boys and girls, so how much does God love us? And that's when Ashton quoted Buzz Lightyear to infinity and beyond. (laughs) And that is how much God loves you. That's how much he loves me, to infinity and beyond. Apparently, Hosea found Gomer again in the slave market on the auction block. History tells us that these slave markets, the slave markets of the ancient world, were terrible, brutal places. The slaves were stripped and paraded before the buyers. Imagine Hosea in the crowd watching his naked wife be totally humiliated, totally insulted. Hosea suddenly enters the bidding and buys her back. Notice in verse 2, Hosea bought Gomer, I'll try it again, for a homer. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks. Actually, 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And according to Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, the standard price for a slave was 30 shekels. That means that Gomer was bought for less than the price of an ordinary slave. Sin had taken its toll. She was half the amount of a normal slave. She, she had been beaten up. The world had tossed her side. It had used her and abused her and had wasted her life. What a moving scene. Hosea pays the price, wraps his disgraced bride in his overcoat, dries her tears, helps her to her feet, and escorts her home. Isn't that, though, what Jesus Christ has done for us? What a powerful picture. We were once a slave to sin, but on the cross, Jesus entered the bidding for our soul. He paid the price for our redemption. Now He's clothed us in His righteousness. He's dried our tears. He's helped us home. In fact, the Hebrew name Hosea, interestingly, means salvation. And what a powerful picture the story of Hosea and Gomer provide us of the salvation that comes to us through Jesus Christ. He forgives our sin. He covers our shame. He ends our slavery. He does for us what Hosea did for Gomer. But verse 3 continues the story. When Hosea got her home, we're told, And I said to her, You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be towards you. It's interesting, Hosea took Gomer back, but he didn't try to turn back the clock and ignore what she had done. Hosea took her home, but he didn't take her to bed. He brought her under his protection, and he provided her provision, but they continued to sleep in separate rooms. Hosea gave her time to learn repentance, and to demonstrate her desire to be a good wife. And for an unspecified period of time, Gomer was without a man, Hosea included. To sum it up, 
Gomer was no longer a harlot, but neither was Hosea her husband, not in the strictest sense of the word. This is where the analogy shifts from the church to Israel. For verses 4 and 5 describe Israel's status for the last 2,000 years. She's no longer an idolatrous people, a harlot, if you will. But neither is God her husband. She was cured of faith in false gods, but she hasn't yet been convinced of faith in the Son of God. Today, God supports Israel and protects her, but they're sleeping in separate rooms. Israel lives in limbo. The people of God have yet to embrace the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 marks a break in the book of Hosea. The topic turns now from his marriage to his message. He's been dwelling on his private misery. Now he begins to trumpet his public message. The dominant theme in chapters 4 through 10 is God's judgment. Chapters 11 through 14 still speak of judgment, but in the midst of it, they highlight God's love. I'm sure Hebrews over the years have recoiled at the analogy of God as the husband and them as the harlot. (laughs) No one likes to look in the mirror and stand there and realize you're gaping at a gomer. But the rest of Hosea proves that there is a little bit of gomer in all of us. And that's why we need to guard our hearts. That's why we need to preserve our devotion to the Lord. Chapter 4 cuts to the root of Israel's problem. In verse 1 we're told, There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Again in verse 6 the Lord tells us, For my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And at the end of the verse... Judgment will come. Why? Because you have forgotten the law of your God. Just yesterday, the lead article in the religious section of the newspaper talked about the shocking lack of Bible knowledge among Christians today. How that only 16% of born-again Christians claim to read their Bible every day. It's appalling. When people don't desire God's Word... When the priests or pastors don't deliver God's word. When the people have a lack of knowledge, trouble and judgment is an inevitable consequence. Verse 2 tells us that when the walls of God's word come down, people break all restraint. You know, today we ponder the cause of school shootings and gang violence and the overall breakdown of morality in America as if it were a mystery. Good grief. Isn't it obvious? When you eliminate biblical standards, when you take away the concept of absolute authority, anything goes. Brace yourself for anarchy. Verse 14 indicts the men of Israel who offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. These ritual harlots were the playboy bunnies of the ancient world. They were the prostitutes who masqueraded as priestesses of free love and sexual liberation. But look at verse 11. Harlotry, wine, and new wine, they do what? They enslave the heart. It's amazing how what you think is liberation can become incarceration, 
it can end up devastation. Real freedom, guys, is not freedom to sin. It's freedom from sin. We need to understand that. That's true freedom. In the 1980s, you'll remember him, the star of the Winter Olympics was the notorious Italian playboy and slalom skier, Alberto Tomba. He was known for partying all night and then skiing the next day. And his motto, the last one to bed is the first one down the slope. But here's the question. Which slope? Maybe the ski slope, but certainly the slippery slope of sin that leads to enslavement and the entrapment of the heart. Guys, we need to beware. Whatever you give your heart to will eventually become your master. You can count on it. Remember the northern kingdom of Israel had set up idols in Dan and Bethel. They worshipped Jeroboam's golden calves. No wonder they were so bullheaded. Verse 16 tells us, For Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. And after years of trying to break through Israel's hard-heartedness, God concludes in verse 17. To me, it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Wow. God says, let him alone. I've had enough. Understand, God is not giving up on Israel but rather he is giving her over to what she has persistently pursued, and God will do that. God wants to protect you. God wants to deliver you. But if you persist in sin, he will eventually turn you over to the consequences you have insisted upon, to the choices that you have been perpetually determined to to make. God will give you over to those consequences. Notice chapter 5, verse 6. We're told, with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. Wow. Here is the classic example of a person who wants the knowledge of God, but without repentance. You see, Israel's sinful behavior and idolatrous attitude had mocked God and had disobeyed His law for centuries. Now they come to make sacrifice, but without admitting their sin. They want restoration without repentance. And it doesn't work that way. God always expects two things from us. Faith and repentance. And both are needed. Don't just come with faith. You need repentance too. Don't just come with repentance. You need faith. Faith trusts God for the power to change. Repentance provides the willingness to change. We need both. I need to say, Lord, I'm willing to change. And Lord, I want you to change me. We need faith and repentance. Tragically, when the people of Israel finally realized that they were in trouble... Rather than run to God for help, they turn to the Assyrians. But verse 13 of chapter 5 warns them, The king of Assyria cannot cure you, nor heal you of your wound. And this was a further affront to God, that they would turn to someone else for help 
rather than to him. In the midst of all these warnings in chapter 6, Hosea presents an invitation. He says in verse 1, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. What a beautiful thought. God's rod of discipline is in one hand, but his bandages of love are in the other hand. No sooner does God spank us that he turns right back around and hugs us and comforts us afterwards. He has torn, but he will heal. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. One night, my son Nick, who at the time was five years old, he had pushed me to my limits. And I finally sent him to his room while I went to fetch the dreaded wooden spoon. I was just about to dish out the discipline when Nick looked up at me through his teary eyes and with his little quivering voice, and he asked, Dad, when you finish spanking me, will you give me a great big hug? What a heartwarming, anger-diffusing, daddy-disarming comment for a kid to make. And of course I told him, yes, son, I'll give you a big hug. And guess what I did? I went right ahead and spanked him anyway. (laughs) He needed it. It takes both warm hugs and wooden spoons to raise a child. And likewise, to raise a Christian. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6 tells us, Whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. Hey, there are times when God will humble us with one hand and then He will heal that hurt with the other hand. There's the rod of discipline in one hand. There are the bandages of love in the other. And that's how God grows kids. Hosea chapter 6 verse 2 is an interesting verse. Hosea tells us, After two days He will revive us. On the third day He will raise us up that we may live in His sight. There are many different possible interpretations of this passage, but let me give you three to sort of chew on. First, it is possible that it could refer to the resurrection of Jesus. Salvation comes when we identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, in a spiritual sense, we died with Him on the cross And then we rose from the dead with him three days later. One possible interpretation. Second, there's a theory that has been advanced by a guy guy named Arnold Frochtenbaum. How's that for a name? He says that this time period refers to a literal three days at the close of the Great Tribulation. For two days, the Jews will contemplate and examine the claims of Jesus. Then on the third day, they'll accept him as their Messiah and be delivered by his second coming. That also is a possible interpretation here. The third interpretation is based on Peter's comment in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, that with the Lord, a thousand years is as a single day. And for the past 2,000 years, or in essence, Two days, as the theory goes, the Jewish people have been stricken and torn. But the Bible speaks of a final 
millennium or thousand-year period or a third day where Israel will be restored to its former glory. It's possible that at the turn of the second millennium A.D., our generation is closing in on Hosea's two days and the beginning of that third day when Jesus will come back and establish his thousand-year reign on the earth. That also is a very provocative and interesting theory. Chew on all three and see which one you decide on. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, is quoted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. It's an important verse. The Lord says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. In other words, a person can sing and serve and salute the Lord with his praise and in the end never really know the Lord. You see, what matters to God is not our rituals, but our relationship. Do we really know the Lord? Once a new preacher came to town and visited the noted scholar Thomas Carlyle. He wanted to know from this wise man what the local parish needed most. Carlyle never hesitated. He said, what we need is a man who knows God other than by hearsay. Isn't that the need today? Men who know more than rituals, more than rules, more than liturgies and formulas, rather men who know God powerfully and personally and intimately. In chapter 7, Hosea uses four idioms to describe the spiritual unfaithfulness of Israel. A heated oven, a cake unturned, a silly dove, and a deceitful bow. Verses 4 through 7 compare Israel to a baker's oven. Understand, the baker would stoke the fire and then cook on top of the fireplace. But after a day's work, he let the fire die out. But Israel is a fire that never cools. In other words, her evil refuses to wane. She's full of unbridled lust, the fire of lust. The history of the southern kingdom of Judah consisted of periods of wickedness interspersed with periodical revivals led by a few godly kings. But not so with the northern kingdom of Israel. They were a heated oven that never died, that never waned. Nineteen kings reigned over Israel, and every single one of them was corrupt to the core. Every one of them pursued idols. There was no break in her blasphemy. In her 200 years, her evil never dimmed or died out. Verses 8 through 10 use the comparison of an unturned cake. Forget to turn your pancakes over, and what will happen? They'll burn to a crisp. And likewise, a proud Israel refused to change. They refused to turn over. They refused to acknowledge the error of their ways and return to God. Guys, I like the maxim, when you're through changing, you're through. That's true of us. The Christian life requires constant change. If the goal is to be like Jesus, have you arrived? None of us have arrived. That means that we're still in the process of change. We need to embrace change. That's why if you're through changing, you're through. 
Verses 11 through 15 compare Israel to a silly dove. There's an Eastern proverb that says, there's nothing more simple than a dove. Doves are dumb. They listen to a multitude of voices and they become confused and they lose their way. They don't know who to trust. And this was Israel. She made alliances with the Egyptians and then with Egypt's adversary, the Assyrians. They made alliances with everybody but the God who could deliver them. Rather than faithful, Israel was fickle. Are you a silly dove? Do you know who to listen to? Do you know who to follow? In verse 16, Israel is compared to a warped bow. When my son Zach was 11 years old, he bought from a friend a BB gun that had a warped barrel. He spent 15 bucks on it. And I hated to tell him when he got home and started to show off that BB gun that he had gotten ripped off. But he had. And when I made him look down that barrel, he could see that it was as wavy as a piece of taffy. It just just was like that. It was warped. A warped barrel. I will give him credit. At least he was smart enough to get a money-back guarantee on the rifle. Likewise, Israel's barrel was bent. Her bow was warped. She missed the mark not because her aim was off, but because the bow itself was bent and incapable of shooting straight. You see, this is the problem with mankind in general. Guys, our sin is not the result of an occasional slip or a bad aim. Our very nature is warped. And you can't repair a warped bow. It has to be replaced. And this is what Jesus does for us. He cuts out that old nature and He plants within us a new nature that loves God, that loves others. This is what the Bible calls regeneration, the new birth. This is what we need. This is the cure for a warped bow. In chapter 8, verse 5, the Lord rejects the calf worship of the Samaritans in Israel. He says in verse 6, The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. He'll break the calf in half. Verse 7 is an ominous verse. They sow to the wind and reap the whirlwind. Isn't this what's happened in America today? In the 1960s, we sowed the seeds of relativism. And humanism, today the results are totally out of hand. Philosophical seeds sown back then in courtrooms and classrooms are now threatening our safety in the streets. Now we can't even go to class without worrying about our safety. Verse 12 is a sad verse. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. Isn't it a terrible situation When the Bible becomes a strange thing, when no one knows the Bible, when they don't read it, when they don't live it, when they consider it strange. Make no mistake about it. God is going to hold us responsible for what's in this Bible. That's why, rather than it be a stranger, it needs to become your familiar friend. Hosea chapter 9 is a chapter of severe judgments. 
Israel has thumbed its nose in God's face for the last time. Ephraim and Samaria will be utterly destroyed. In verse 15, God makes a heavy statement of Israel. He says, I will love them no more. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We know, Sandy, that God's love, as Buzz Lightyear says, is to infinity and beyond. What do you mean God will love them no more? Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3 tells us that God loves Israel with an everlasting love. But when you compare the words, the difference in the words, here's what you see. In Jeremiah 31 verse 3, the word love is used as a noun. Whereas here in Hosea chapter 9 verse 15, the word love is a verb or an action word. Yes, God's love is everlasting. In a sense, God will always love you. Hey, God still loves everybody in hell, does he not? He still loves them. But God no longer extends that love to those who have permanently rejected him. God will love Israel forever and ever. But there will come a time when the people's sin and stubbornness will keep God from extending that love to them. God will love you forever and ever. But there will come a time, if you reject Him, that He'll no longer be able to extend that love to you. Verse 17 sums up what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel My God will cast them away because they did not obey Him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. Assyria sacked Samaria in 722 B.C. and scattered the Hebrews across their vast empire. The wandering Jew became a proverbial expression. For 2,700 years, these tribes of Israel have wandered among Gentile nations. In the Dickens novel, Bleak House, An orphan Jewish boy is told by the policeman to stop loitering and move on. The boy answers with tears in his eyes. I'm always a moving on, sir. I've been a moving on since I was born. Where can I possibly move to, sir? The hard officer replied, my instructions don't address that question. I've been told that you are to move on, and I've told you so 500 times. That's what's happened to the nation Israel. They're told to move on, to move on. They go from one country. They're told to move on to the next and down through the centuries. They've had no home. They've kept moving on. But where have they gone? Where was there to go? Not until modern times and the rebirth of the nation Israel have the Jews finally found a homeland. Chapter 10, verse 12, is a vital verse for you and me. Here we're told, Break up your fallow ground, For it is time to seek the Lord. Whenever you plant a garden, you first have to prepare the soil. You take a hoe or a plow or a motorized tiller and you turn up the ground over and over until the dry and brittle earth becomes soft and fertile. Once I borrowed my dad's tiller to turn up my backyard and to plant some grass. Months later, I could see where I had tilled and where I hadn't. The places where I had worked the soil and softened the soil. This was where I had the strongest stands of grass. 
the place where I had not worked the soil, these were the barren spots. Repentance does for our spirit what a tiller does to hard, crusty ground. The truly repentant heart, the heart that sees its sin in all its ugliness, True repentance sees myself and my situation as God sees it. True repentance evaluates the hurt I've caused God, the hurt I've caused others. True repentance turns over in my mind my actions and my rebellion, and it searches for the root causes of my rebellion. True repentance identifies the character flaw. It pinpoints the besetting sin. It admits the area where I have lacked faith. True repentance digs down deep and it turns over my life over and over until it works out those problems. This is true repentance. And this is the type of repentance that breaks up the fallow ground of a sinful heart. And it allows the seed of God's Word to take root and to grow and to really create spiritual growth. The seed can be good, but if the heart is not prepared, it won't take root, it won't sprout, it won't grow. This is why we need to turn up the soil of our hearts. We need to work over that soil with a thorough repentance. And if you've done it, if you have used a rotiller, and if you've plowed up your backyard, you know that tilling ground is laborious, hard, back-breaking, agonizing work, and so is real repentance. The results, though, are worth the effort. Never forget, the strongest stands of spiritual fruit will grow where you have worked the ground. In chapter 11, God recalls His tender mercies toward Israel. God loved Israel as a doting dad loves a son. Notice he says in verses 3 and 4, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. I'm sure sure you have seen the type. The dad who's obsessed with his child's every move, his first step, his first tooth, his first bicycle, his first home run, his first goal scored. Here's the man that can't go anywhere without a video camera. He spends his evenings mechanically manipulating his kid's legs, supposedly teaching the little infant how to walk around the room. This is a doting dad. And here's what I want to say. God is a doting dad to me and you. He's preoccupied with his kids. He can't keep his eyes off of you. God jumps for joy. Heaven erupts with applause. Not when another hollow peace treaty gets signed or when a new president gets elected. That's superficial to God. No, God rejoices when one of his kids takes a step of obedience or cuts a tooth on the truth. God's goal is to teach his kids how to walk by faith in the power of the Spirit, in holiness. Notice too in verses 3 and 4, all that God is not. 
He's not pushy. He pulls rather than pushes. He motivates us with love, not fear or hate. He doesn't expect more than we can deliver. He's gentle and patient. He removes rather than creates burdens. He's willing to get down on our level to meet our needs. (laughs) What a dead we have. Verse 8 is to me the most stirring verse in the book of Hosea. God knows Israel needs to be judged. In verse 7, he says that they've been bent on backsliding. Something has to be done with these people. But the thought of the harm that will befall Israel breaks God's heart. Look at what he says. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim were cities destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. And catch this, he says, My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. Remember who's, who's, who's speaking here. Here is the God of the universe. But when he thinks of the pain that it's going to cause him to have to judge his people, he says his heart is churned up. His sympathy is stirred. I love what Philip Yancey writes of this verse. He says, In the very act of delivering a series of threats, God seems to break down and cry, and a cry of love escapes. You cannot read these words in Hosea and then accuse God of being a cold, callous, vindictive judge. You cannot do it. God is more a heart-torn parent trying to rescue a rebellious kid with some tough love. His heart is churned up. It's stirred with compassion. Chapter 11 closes with another indictment against Ephraim or the northern kingdom. Israel had made some hollow promises. The people had lied to God, which is always a dangerous situation. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira if you remember them. It reminds me of the Eskimo boy who visited his girlfriend. And he told her, he said, I've driven my dog team 100 miles through ice and snow to see you tonight. Not believing him, she answered, Ah, that's a lot of mush. (laughs) Israel's promises were all mush. Chapter 12 brings up three incidences from the life of Jacob. When he grabbed with his hand, when he touched, when he was touched on the hip and where he dedicated his house. The word Jacob, remember, means hill catcher. He got the name when he came out of the womb holding on to his twin brother Esau's heel. From day one, Jacob was not willing to play second fiddle to his older brother. He wanted the family's birthright, even if he had to resort to dishonest means to get it. You remember that's what happened. He blackmailed Esau and he deceived his father Isaac. One night, though, Jacob was met by the angel of the Lord. He must have thought that the angel was Esau, back for revenge, because he wrestled with the angel all night. And in the end, the experience humbled Jacob. 
He realized that he could never get what he wanted with his own hand. Real blessing comes only from the hand of God. And he grabbed hold of the angel and he said, Bless me indeed. And the angel blessed Jacob, but in the process he crippled his leg. And from that day forward, Jacob walked with a limp. An important reminder that his strength was in God, not in himself. The final episode is Jacob's experience at Bethel. After the angel blesses him, God tells Jacob to return to Bethel. And there Jacob puts away his idols and cleanses himself and changes his garments. It all equals a commitment to God. And at Bethel, Jacob gets a new name. Israel becomes his new name, which means Prince of God. You see, the story of Jacob is an example to us and to Israel. He went from rebelling against God to wrestling with God to finally resting in God. Where are you in that process? Are you rebelling against God? Are you wrestling with God? Are you resting in God? Israel was headed in reverse direction. (laughs) If you're wrestling with God tonight, you need to surrender. Ask Jesus for his blessing. Make a commitment to the Lord. Let him change your life. The remainder of chapter 12 mentions how Israel had denied her sin. And that's why in verse 10, God says that he sent prophets to expose the people's sin. Often they spoke in living parables. Like Hosea, they acted out their message. Chapter 13, verse 2 says of Israel, they sin more and more. There's a saying, a Christian isn't a person who is sinless, but a person who sins less and less and less. Just the opposite, though, happened to Israel. They sinned more and more. They sunk deeper and deeper into idolatry. Verse 2 describes how they flaunted their devotion to idols. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. A kiss was a gesture of honor and worship. Remember, the Jews kissed the Torah scrolls out of reverence to God's word. In ancient times, people would kiss the king's ring as an expression of submission. It reminds me of the boy who asked a girl for a kiss. She responded, I'm sorry, but I have scruples. The boy answered, that's okay, I've been vaccinated. (laughs) Well, the people of Israel... They lacked the spiritual scruples and the devotion to God. And rather than kiss the Lord, they were kissing the golden calves. Who are you kissing tonight? Who who are you kissing? To whom are you expressing your devotion and your loyalty and your love? Psalm chapter 2 verse 12 warns us, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And you perish in the way. Chapter 14 turns a corner. The book ends as Israel returns to God. The last chapter looks to the last days. When Israel repents and God restores his people. And Israel's restoration begins as every restoration begins with confession. Once I remember speaking to a lady who said of her friend... He knows he's sinned, but he just hasn't told it to God yet. 
Hey, that's the case with a lot of people. But that's the first step toward restoration. It is not just to know you've sinned, but to tell it to God. Confess it. Admit it. Come clean. That's why Hosea instructs us to tell our sin to God. Verses 1 and 2 encourage us. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Take words with you, he says. Confess it. Declare it. That's important. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Israel trusted in the Assyrians to save her, but they became her conqueror. And in verse 3, the nation repudiates those impotent idols and refocuses her trust in God. The people say of God, for in you the fatherless find mercy. The Lord speaks to the people of Israel in verse 4. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. Charles Spurgeon used to say, God soon turns from his wrath, but he never turns from his love. God is waiting on an opportunity to again show you just how much he loves you. God uses the wooden spoon, yes, but it's always followed. By a warm hug. The rest of chapter 14 describes God's blessing on his restored people. Refreshment, growth, beauty, influence, honor, productivity, joy. The blessings are endless. These, of course, are the same blessings that God wants to pour out on every one of us who trusts in Jesus Christ. I hope you're committed to walk by faith this week and watch what God will do in your life as you look to Him and lean on Him. Father, thank You for this wonderful book. Lord, help us as we study Your Word week to week. Help us to grow in our faith and in our knowledge. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good week. You're dismissed. Next week, we're going to do two books, Joel and Amos.